Some of you will remember back to your English days when you're learning to write a paper and your teacher no doubt taught you to write a, a topic sentence. The, the man went on a stroll with his dog on the beach and that gives you somewhat of an idea of where the paragraph may be going. Uh, and in the same way, lots of psalms here, Psalm 107, like many, introduces really the whole psalm in a, in a brief few verses in order that you might know what to do with the psalm, who it's for, everything about it. It, it gives you a topic sentence, as it were, and it does it in Psalm 107 in the first three verses. It lays out in these First three, what, why, how, and whom of the whole psalm. And, and what I want to begin by doing is looking just in a little more detail at the first three. Um, you'll notice that I tried to pause, but you can see distinct sections, and it's a very systematic psalm. But what I want to do is help you understand the whole thing, though we won't go verse by verse through the whole thing in our time here. Look in verse 1. This is where we find the what and the why. The psalm begins with a command that instructs us what we are to do in relation to God. Oh, give thanks or oh, give praise to Yahweh for he is good for his steadfast love is or endures forever. This topic sentence tells us that our duty to God is to vocalize, to put on our tongue and our lips gratitude towards God, specifically in praise. We should say things like, thank you, God, ellipsis, you fill in the blank. Now, in this psalm, over and over again, there are, there's one thing or, or two things called to mind. Namely, it's introduced here by two fours, F-O-R-4, four, he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. There's, there's two characteristics that are in God, namely who he is for which we ought to give thanks. I, I love um, the literal rendering of this verse, to everlasting an emphasis on the length of time um, concerning God's character as it relates to us to everlasting is his steadfast love. <clears throat> but I'm glad the psalmist doesn't stop there. He tells us, verse 2, how these things come about. You'll notice that if we talk about God's steadfast love or his goodness, this is somewhat abstract. It, it is not concrete in the sense that it needs to be applied. Goodness in God, well, how does it work itself out in our lives? Steadfast love of God, well, that's nice, but what does it actually look like? Verse 2 elaborates just a little bit on what it looks like. It says, let the redeemed of Yahweh say so, that is, give thanks and say so concerning his steadfast love and his goodness, whom he has redeemed from trouble. If you have the ESV or 
in other translations, it's from the hand of the foe. Now, uh, biblical poetry oftentimes needs a preacher or a footnote because poetry by its nature does interesting things and it uh, expands our categories. And here in this I found it very interesting because I'm used to the ESV. It's the one that I've used for the last few years now at this point. Um, and I've I switched periodically. But in the ESV is one of the only popular versions. You can find other lesser known versions that render it a little bit more generally. It, it literally is from the hand of the enemy for uh, that we're to give thanks for delivering us literally from the hand of the enemy. That's what the Hebrew says. But here, I think the ESV does the best job standing alone and translating it a little bit more generally because the point of it's a double entendre. It, it is to give, um, although yes, it is specific uh, in, in terms of persecution or dealing with affliction by somebody who is set against us, that is in mind, clearly in the psalm. Yet, however, at the same time, the psalm in the very first section that we'll look at opens up with more general affliction that come about by God's working. And from this sense, both grammatically and theologically, uh, the psalm is pertinent for us. That is, it applies to all of our general affliction, whatever it may be. It could be in the realm of health, could be in the realm of finances, it could be in the realm of, of uh, um, shifting of, of things in your soul. It, it could be from all sorts of different uh, troubles that we find ourselves in. Or it could be from persecution from others. Regardless, this, this is a call for us. That those who've been rescued from those afflictions, whatever they may be, are then held responsible to sound off our thanksgiving that God has delivered us from these things. So the psalm is pertinent for not only uh, a little bit of our life, but lots of our life in all sorts of various different struggles. Lastly, it tells us whom this psalm is for. And it says he, the redeemed are gathered in from the lands from the east and from the west and from the north, from the south. Now, this command, as it's written by the psalmist, first and foremost, is written for Jews in exile. Yet we must not forget that the New Testament infallibly interprets the Old Testament for us. And so we can take a verse like 2 Timothy 2 or 3, 15 through 17, and see that all scripture is Christian scripture. All scripture it has application towards us because it's all pointing forward to its fulfillment in Christ. And therefore, I would advocate that the fullness of these words apply to every Christian believer across the whole globe from the north and from the south and from the east and from the west. This psalm is for you here in America many thousands of years after it's been penned. So in the setup of the psalm, this is the general outline that you could stop here and you'd know what to take from the rest of the psalm and you could work through it yourself. What I want to do is first in verses 4 through 9, 
I want to point out the pattern. In the Psalms, often with poetry, there is a pattern that is established and it is worked over and over and over again. And that's what we encounter here. Yet throughout the Psalm, there are, um, although there's a form given and different instances of affliction that the psalmist inserts and then he plays out the same pattern every time he does something that lots of poetry does in order to help expand and and um have greater depth of clarity and and different hues of of understanding communicated to us by taking that form which i'll show you in just a second and augmenting it slightly and bending the initial Uh, rules that were laid out by the psalmist himself. The structure in an acronym or in a whatever you call this, um, five letters back to back are DPDPC. DPDPC. That's what you're going to see the whole time. That's the form. And I'll show you it. It it is a pattern here. What it refers to first in verse four And verse 5, talking about wandering in desert wastes, finding no city to dwell in, and hungry and thirsty. This is their distress, okay? D, P, verse 6, at least the first part, they cried to the Lord. That's prayer, distress, prayer, verse, second half of 6 into 7, deliverance. Hey, he delivered them from this, and then he gives an example of how that, I'm just putting that together, is deliverance. P, praise, is followed by this repeating statement in verse 8. Let them thank Yahweh for a steadfast love. That is praise. So distress, prayer, deliverance, praise. And then C, the character of God. For he, verse 9, he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. This is the pattern, and and we're going to look at it in a little more depth at the first. And then because we don't have as much time as going through it verse by verse, I'm going to show you the the different flavors and augments that are made so as to help fill out our understanding. What's being communicated is pretty simple and straightforward, but he wants you to grasp it. And be able to expand your, really your theological understanding so that you might be able to apply it to your own life. And this is the, I believe, intention of the psalm. So as we focus, let us just look at four and five to begin. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. As the ESV has set us up, our first situation is general trouble, where some find themselves lacking the basic provisions of life. You can see very clearly in verse 5, they hunger and they thirst. But do you also see the need that is gotten at in verse 4? Sometimes we make this mistake in our understanding. We don't see a, a, a word that... Uh, makes sense to us and we don't know what needs being communicated there yet what is being communicated here when he says desert wastes 
no city to dwell in. The idea is there's no shelter. So he's lacking housing, clothing maybe even, but the idea is shelter, food, water, these basic things are are in need. And so this is the situation that the Lord brings his people in. And this situation is the thing that prompts them in their trouble to call out in prayer to the Lord. Jesus himself enshrines this kind of request as an essential staple of our prayer life as Christians. We are to daily bring to God this request, quote, give us this day our daily bread. This is a spiritual and good question. And at times it is exacerbated by great stress and becomes maybe even in a time a prominent issue. I don't know where the paycheck is coming from next month. I don't know where the shelter is at this moment. God may lead us into these sorts of things. And what it's to elicit in you is maybe not the most typical of requests. You don't pray stoically. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. At this time, especially if you're hungry and thirsty, you say, Lord, I'm really hungry. And it comes out in pain and an intense crying out to God in faith. This is where God wants to lead us because his desire is to answer it in a particular way. Verse 6b and 7, and again and again, he delivered them from their distress. What does he do? He led them by a straight way, (laughs) not a circuitous path. Sometimes it feels that way. But he led them by a straight way until they reached the city to dwell in. And as we know, there are resources in cities. There's food, there's water. They can't exist without those. There's shelter. And so God answers all the needs that are met. They call, he answers. And and this is what we are to expect in our lives as Christians. We are led into difficulties. We cry out to him and he answers in response to our requests. This is his steadfast love. Now we go to, we've Hit distress, prayer, deliverance. Now, verse 8, praise. And this is the one that's said over and over again. It's a line that the psalmist, I think, would have us remember and be able to say ourselves in various different ways, although we might articulate even more than this. Verse 8 says, Let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Here we are to Praise the Lord with glad hearts. I want to call out one word, at least in the ESV, wondrous works. I didn't look at this in other translations, but um, the Hebrew entry for the the most, usually what's called the scholarly source for uh, biblical Hebrew, halot. Uh, lists this as miraculous acts, and, and really that's what it is. It's, it's signs and wonders. It's meant to communicate to us the supernatural character of the answer. It is providential leading to a city, in this case, which is simple. It's physical, but it's to be understood as God's miraculous supernatural intention 
It's an instance of his steadfast love actually coming about in your reality. It is his goodness on display. So, so you see <clears throat> here in this one, when God's people approach him through faith, when, when we approach God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, he answers according to the grace in Christ. And we say he is our yes and amen, which is just a quotation from scripture in the last song we sang. Now, <clears throat> you need to notice this. This is the last part. DP, DP, C, character of God. The last part of the form before we sort of skip over and touch important parts. Character of God in verse 9. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry he soul he fills with good things. Good things. Now, you should notice this connection that was already introduced to us in verse 1. He is good, and therefore he answers with good towards his people. A good God gives his people good things. He answers his requ- our requests from his nature. He, he cannot, will not, and does not uh, even consider giving us evil things, harmful things that will destroy us. This is not our God. He, he answers according to his nature. We, we petition him for simple good things, food, water, um, but we should say also that these things don't limit themselves to those physical things. They are also all spiritual good. It is true that all that God gives us, both physical, spiritual, are good in the end. Now, <clears throat> now that we've covered the form of the whole psalm, you'll see this working itself out. I don't think I need to explain that to you. And so what I want to do is take just little parts of each section um, a little bit more, uh, we'll take a little bit more in this next section and then very selective through the rest. The next section is verse 10 through 16 and it's this repeated pattern. But now there's an augment to include sinfulness on our part or on part of the people of God. <clears throat> this section in verse 10 and 11, let's just read it so it's in our minds. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. You see how it's fitting that it applies first and foremost to a people in exile, though we are reminded that Peter himself has to exhort Christians not to end up in jail for murder or for things like uh, serious sin. So this, this psalm here talks about a dreadful affliction of chains. And however, the way he augments the form is to show that this situation, uh, as dreadful as it is, is a result of God's providence towards his people. They had at a time rejected his word and therefore they are in bonds as a result of their sin and that all of the providence of God. He is the source of ultimately of their affliction, though 
he is blameless and, and righteous in putting him th- them there. And then in 12 through 14, you see the um, difficulty that they're in and you see prayer. Verse 12, so he bowed down their hearts with hard labor. They fell down with none help. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Here, we see something gloriously wonderful that God's humbling of them and putting them in a desperate and dire place is not merely punitive. It's not merely punishment. You did this, so I give you that. In fact, it's actually aimed at restoration. The scourge is aimed at the healing. This is fatherly discipline, which doesn't desire ultimately to destroy, but rather desires to humble for the purpose of bringing them to prayerful confession of sin. This is the pattern of our worship because this is the pattern of life. This is how we experience things. We, though we desire to do good, often find ourselves falling underneath God's law and sin and guilty under it and therefore are to be humbled and led to praying. And though this is a hard providence, everyone who goes under that, affliction and comes out confessing uh, Christ bestows full pardon of transgression. He, he desires to lead his people out of their prisons, <clears throat> even if we take that a little bit more metaphorically for us and deliver us. That's ultimately what he desires for each and every one of us if we are to be caught in sin. Now, <clears throat> in verse 15 and 16, You have praise and then you have God's character again. Verse 15 and 16 read, Let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Now, in the midst of a rightful prison sentence, that's, that's what we have here, God's forgiveness can break through. Why? Why does God's forgiveness break through? And and what's the character of God that's called that? It says, namely, because he bursts bonds. Well, how does that refer to the character of God? This means that his providence is powerful. The instruments that hold men in their shackles, hold women in in their chains, which are stronger than us and keep us locked down, as it were, are no match for the grace of God. They are um, simply a means to fatherly forgiveness and correction so that at the end of it, we might echo out God's mercy and his grace towards us in thanksgiving. No matter the sin, from small to great, the remedy is the blood of Christ. And when we plead it, we are forgiven. And therefore, we ought to echo, like here, his grace and that it has been powerful towards us. Now, that's the most I'm going to spend on on the first two sections. We're going to really skip, hop, and a jump over different areas. But I want 
hopefully to make this really clear. The next section, you know, you can you can mark these in your Bible before and after. Just mark these sections off and then you'll have uh, different places where you can watch the pattern work itself out. And 17 through 22 is the next section. And it's similar. <clears throat> However, it does add one addition. And by way of addition, there's a subtraction. It doesn't do the DPDPC. It just expands on the, the P, the praise. It, it adds an additional layer of, of worship to God that is really wonderful, I think. So the repeated phrase, let them thank Yahweh for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. And then in addition, it says, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell his deeds in songs of joy or with with a cry of joy. <clears throat> um, I'll talk about that in just a second. So here, my main thing that I want to point out is this, this phrase, sacrifice of thanksgiving. In other texts, it's very clearly that the thanksgiving itself is sacrifice. I'd argue that that's the case in this particular instance. But what you have here, in this case, I believe, and then especially in other cases, Psalm 50, I think Psalm 116 as well, um, and other places in Chronicles, <clears throat> you have the mingling of this language, which is, I hope you're helped by in all of your reading of the Old Testament. This is, um, uh, I'm going to teach you a paradigm of sacrifice in the Old Testament. So you read it as a Christian and you don't, you don't mess this up. The, the point here, mingling the language of slaughter on the one hand, that's, it's a very zavach, it sounds bloody too. It, it is the sacrificial slaughter of an animal on the one hand, and on the other is mixed with, well, sacrifice and thanksgiving coming together, <clears throat> which conjure up two different pictures not unlike the book of Revelation, and smashes them together to give you a, a composite picture of something glorious and great. Really, sacrifice, thanksgiving, these two realities form a concept, it really the, one of the central concepts of worship in the whole Old Testament. There are even, you might know, specific sacrifices that are for the purpose of giving thanks. These are already tied together in the peace offering and in a thanks offering, which is you can look at that in whatever Bible app you use. Um, But these specific um, sacrifices, I don't think are are in mind, just the concept of thanksgiving as sacrifice. Um, According to the very nature of sacrifice, rightly offered, there must be thanks in the heart. It's, it's an essential component. Otherwise, it really isn't sacrifice. It, it, it doesn't actually please God. And you see that throughout the whole Old Testament where the sacrifices are being had, but their heart's not there. There needs to be the joining of the two for sacrifice to be righteous and good. And so therefore, as I would interpret it, this second half, which talks about a ringing cry of joy, or 
songs of joy, maybe. Uh, Elsewhere, it's tears of joy that are uh, interpreting this for us. I would take this as thanksgiving. What we've done here in this service is our sacrifice to the Lord. And so most basically, what you should understand is this. Sacrifice is the grateful offering of your resources to serve God. The grateful offering of your resources, your mental resources, your physical resources, your financial resources, your all of them, whatever resources you have are in the service of God with thanksgiving. That, that's, that's sacrifice. That's what it looks like. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I can say it this way. Let me say it this way, and it might be helpful. Vocal thanksgiving. When, when, we, when we say it out loud, give thanks to God, we acknowledge that the Lord is both the source of all of our good, and it, in doing that, dedicates those gifts of his grace to the service of his glory. Okay? Our vocal thanksgiving acknowledges the Lord as the source of all our good, dedicates his gifts of grace to the service of his glory. It, it, uh, understood rightly, thanksgiving is, is centered on God and Christ. And I've preached this sermon before, so I won't preach it again. I'll just assert it. I like it because it's edgy, or it seems edgy maybe, or um, insulting, and in some ways it sort of is. That's okay. Uh, true thanksgiving, thusly, can only be a Christian act. There's no such thing as thanksgiving other than Christian thanksgiving. All of the other things are fake. It needs to be from, through, and to God, and that's the only real thanksgiving that exists in the universe. Everything else is a... Uh, sham is a falsehood. And therefore, our responsibility very clearly is to recount the deeds of the Lord and give sacrifice of thanksgiving so that Christ might be glorified in everything we do. This is private and public. There's a third section here in verse 23 to 32. I'll be very brief here. Notice that in verse 23, there is the actions of men. Seemingly uh, here, it doesn't give you the source of those actions like the one before, but rather it just says men go and do what they were doing. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. And then what happens in verse 24? Well, they saw the deeds of Yahweh his miraculous works in the deep. That is, man does what he does, and God, by his power, intervenes. He shows up and encounters us in wherever we might find ourselves. Uh, This is the uh, providence of intervention that God has certainly worked in all of our lives. And this is to lead the godly to prayer, where he causes a storm uh, in order that we might pray, and then he stills it. <laughs> we, we're, we're in our course. He causes tumult, and then he answers it. <clears throat> this is his plan 
I think this psalm ultimately and gets us ready and gets the disciples ready to anticipate Christ who is asleep and there's a great storm and he comes and he stills the storm and they worship him as God for it. I could spend time on that later. So what we need to do is often in our culture and society today, most people would just consider this as a natural disaster, something like that. And I'm not opposed to the terminology, but as Christians, we must consider natural things like this as the supernatural intervention of God. It is Christ's governance directing all of history to its appointed end. And that has a particular relation to us. History has a movement History has a direction and a purpose. The, the psalmist adds this detail to show us that <clears throat> this deliverance in verse 32 ought to end up as that other addition. He repeats his for the steadfast love. Let them give thanks for, to the Lord for his steadfast love. Excuse me. And then in verse 32, he adds, let them extol him in the congregation of the people. Let them praise him in the assembly of elders which is this beautiful way of acknowledging that the the Lord's salvation everywhere in our lives from various different distresses are meant to be fulfilled as we come into the congregation on a Sunday morning and praise the Lord for that. That could be made specifically known to other people. Um, It'd be neat to even have a song written after it. (laughs) That'd take some time. However, this is even our general experience. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is our experience of God in the world fuels our worship of him in the congregation. And that happens vice versa. (laughs) Your experience of God in worship in the congregation also is meant to um, inform your realities out in our very lives. If you're not regularly thinking about um, all the situations of your life in this type of providence, well, that's what it's meant to fuel (laughs) so that you will see life that way and then come back and praise him. It's beautiful back and forth of experiencing more and more of the glory of God. Now, this is a long section and I have one very brief point and I want to draw it to Christ. So I want to make a point in verse 33 through 42. And then I want to draw it to Christ. And then I want to linger on the closing exhortation. So we'll go just a little bit longer today. But this section here is, I I would think, a great expansion of our our C, our last part of the pattern. So this is all about really ultimately the character of God. And it's giving us... A couple different things. First of all, um, in our acronym C, God's character, what we encounter here are real life events, both for good and both for bad. And we're given examples of each. Verse 33, you'll see that he turns rivers into deserts. He, He makes a good habitation a really terrible one in one instance. And in verse 35, that same parched land, salty waste, is turned into springs of water. It's turned into a place of abundance and flourishing. 
These are natural events. They're actually, we would be able to plot them. Hey, uh, the, the water level has gone down to historic lows and now we have to dig our wells you know, another 50 foot deeper. We had to do that in the, the church not that long ago, right? And so there's, there's some uh, difficulties that people would be able to go, okay, desert or, or fertile spring into a desert, and they would be able, and we should be able in our lives to categorize those, okay, this has happened, um, naturally speaking, or in our lives spiritually, uh, this, this shouldn't be limited to physical circumstances necessarily, <clears throat> or vice versa. It, it was a desert, and now it's like this wonderful, beautiful garden. Both of these things happen, and what the psalmist wants us to understand is this is not just random uh, chance acting on matter or something like that, as our world might have us believe, but this is rather the active providence of God in our lives, the active governance of all of life's realities to a particular end and destination. Even our sad affliction, we know from this scripture and from others, is intended to serve us by leading us to prayer. That's one of the main things he does in this section, and he also through that prayer, though he's led us there, then delivers us from those afflictions. And then we are rejoicing in seeing his faithfulness again and again. This is the wonder of God's providence. You could think of Romans eight twenty eight, which I just assume you know, all things work together for good. Well, how? This way, Psalm 107 way. That's what it looks like. That's how it plays out in history. So this is first God's active providence towards us. And then secondly, like lots of the Psalms, there's ultimate distinctions being drawn. And I want to, this is where I hope it really starts to connect with you. This section here draws out the distinction between the righteous and the wicked Um, there's other nuances of this in scripture, but one thing that we often do is we don't allow so often the Bible to not be nuanced where it doesn't want to be nuanced. You need to be able to say, well, the wicked do this and will be destroyed and the righteous do this and they'll be exalted. No qualifications given. That's how lots of the Psalms go. That's how the Proverbs go. That's how biblical wisdom itself works. This is an instance of wisdom in the Bible. And what it wants you to do is not to say that the righteous don't go through trouble. Of course they do. But here, it's not undoing what it said before, but it's adding so that you would see what it is for the righteous and the wicked in the end, ultimately. Where is this all going and what does it mean? So the ultimate distinction here is for those in Christ and those against him. For the wicked, providence here is described in verse 40 as pouring out contempt on man, princes. And in the case of the upright, on the other end, it is the bestowing of God's blessing. The filling with prosperity. This is God's actions towards these two kinds of people. In the end, Christians will see God's good 
providence toward them and be glad. And in the end and throughout it all, the wicked will have their mouths shut. This is an ultimate distinction which we must always hold. Now, it's good for us to draw this to Christ and then even further to us. <clears throat> I, I um, think you guys already can make a lot of the application which I'm leaving silent. I think what I want to draw out is this distinction. <clears throat> In the life of believers... It's good to look at our life, um, although we're in the midst of it now, to, to remember that there is a, a, a whole story that needs to be grappled with. Some of that story is in the future f- for you and me, but it is all based on God's promises. God has promised you that he will bring you to perfection. He has promised that he will sanctify you. He promised all these sorts of things. So you, in a real sense, know the end of the story for yourself. Exaltation. That is glorification in Christ Jesus. And so we ought to think of this um, so that we would have these ultimate categories stapled in our minds. If we remember Christ, he is a man who at one time truly experienced some of the most difficult of providences that, that you can imagine. He's the God-man, and yet he is, and, and the Messiah prophesied in all the Old Testament, yet he's rejected by his very own people, even the people who are teaching the Old Testament at the time, getting people ready for him. He's rejected, and he's crucified in scorn. If you don't think of the whole story, you might say, well, that's bad providence. He died. And we know missionaries who, if we stop the story at their death, or even faithful men and women of God, it looks like bad providence for them. But we, not, we must know with Christ and then for us, The end of Christ's story is not a tomb, but rather the crushing on his death, on his way out of the tomb to be seated on the highest throne for eternity. This is his providence, the inheritance of the nations of the whole earth and an innumerable host of people who will serve him and love him and delight in who he is for all of eternity. This, this is the end of the story. <laughs> this means that you can look at even the difficult things as just a means to the good providence. It's always an upswing for us as Christians. It's always a positive note. No Christian, even if they die in an ignoble death in obscurity, is not a down note. It might be a down note for a second, but they still have a resurrection and a glory to inherit and a well done, good and faithful servant. And therefore, it is right for us to sit on this final exhortation. Whoever is wise, verse 43, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of Yahweh. Such a fitting exhortation. I love it. (laughs) We should have a whole nother sermon on it. Here it is. 
what makes us wise? Well, this psalm obviously isn't exhaustive, but in this psalm, it teaches us what makes us wise is uh, in three pieces that you can hold together. Three pieces that makes wisdom. First, let him attend to these things. Let him consider contemplation. We must use our minds to think about things for a long time, to mull them over, meditate on them, to think hard. And that is what brings wisdom. Our mind is like a garden that needs tending. It needs, it needs regular pruning, regular watering, regular directing, regular all these sorts of things. And the end of a well-tended mind is a garden of wisdom. So wise mind. So the first part, which is non-negotiable, is we can't be simple. Can't be simple-minded people. Um, we must think deeply. It might be simple in our, in our expression, but we are filled in our minds with wisdom through long contemplation. Secondly, those... Contemplations are set on two things in this psalm. First, life's events. We are to attend to these things, it says, and that is namely life's events. Our history is not random, but rather it is the unfolding story that God has written for you. It's a product of God's purposeful providence towards you. Your life and your days are written in his book before there were any of them. And so you are to consider the storyline of your life, to think about the ups, the downs, the flat lines, the sad and the good. Think about the storyline that God has written for you and not for me. Or for me and not for you. And that is to be joined with a third piece, namely theology. Yes, I know you love this part right here. The steadfast love of Yahweh is an abstract concept unless it's applied. (laughs) That's called theology. It's really what we mean by biblical. It's what it means to have a biblical worldview. You either see things from another worldview And all of us have massive blind spots and areas where we need to grapple. We might uh, have been corrected today in thinking of natural disasters as, as purely that, the working of nature. But rather, no, it's the providence of God. That's what these events are. And, and God's people are specifically called to think everything in light of God's eternal covenant pleasure towards his people. That is what all of your life is about. God's delight in blessing you, even when it's hard. It's still his fatherly delight in you and is meant to lead you deeper into him. And and that's all it means to have a, 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 a worldview or an understanding of your life that is rooted in scripture. Now I'll make these quick because this is a long sermon. I, I know another pastor who preached uh, for 90 minutes the other day. And uh, so I'm not doing that, but we're, we'll, we'll go a few more minutes here. There's a 
three applications. Well, it's one application, and then I want to help you two different ways. <clears throat> How do you pursue this wisdom found in Psalm 107? Number one, start a journal. Start a journal. It's a very practical way to document the events of your life. And as you and I both know, without further documentation of our life, lots of us will just forget what happened and forget to reflect on these things. You'll have no reference. It just passed from the scene because you got lots of stuff going on in your life. And so you, in order to help yourself actually doing these things, need to log them. Log the details of your life. If you want a book to help you, you can go see Donald Whitney's Spiritual Disciplines. Secondly, uh, you need to, at the end of your documentary of your life, leave a section for contemplation that maybe you don't even fill in at the time. In this psalm, there is a slew of different yet very identifiable events. If you, if you don't know what to write, well, I mean, when you're hungry and thirsting and fainting in the desert, that's a situation to write about, isn't it? It's pretty evident. Uh, if you uh, flip over a car and total it, and you get really, <laughs> and you're unscathed for the most part, this is an event that you might want to document. <laughs> If, if you go through some uh, other major shift in your biblical understanding, this, this might be something to document, okay? So after you do those things, you have to meditate on it for a while. You might not know instantly why God has done that, other than you can say, yes, this is a steadfast love of the Lord or a trouble. <clears throat> but I, I would suggest that all sorts of things, both positive and negative, need to go in this section and leave a blank area where you can come back and date it and go, okay, I was, I was thinking this, or this happened, and now here's the result of all of these things. This is a praise to God. <clears throat> now, in addition to this, you'll notice that this whole psalm is the way deliverance comes is through prayer. Prayed. Deliverance, prayed and deliverance. So in, in your documenting of these things, you should probably categorize at least one or, or um, a couple of your prayers in light of what has happened. Maybe it's affliction you're in right now. It could be uh, whatever, uh, whatever it might be, uh, physical, financial, any sort of affliction. Document your prayer. And then in that section below, you get to go later and say, and it's answered. There's a, a famous man <clears throat> who has a, has a book on this, um, and his name is escaping me at the moment. But <clears throat> this is the way to do it. Start a journal, leave a section of contemplation, and especially in those afflictions that we experience, document your prayers so that later, once you've attended to these things, you might come and rejoice in the work of the Lord in your life, over and over and over again and encourage the saints over and over and over again because God will be extremely active in your life. He certainly is. And it's our job to seek wisdom so that we might praise him for these things. Without further ado, let us pray.